And so if you take your Bibles and join me in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. We're going to be jumping around several places. But let's start here and then let's end up in this chapter in 2 Timothy as we continue. And this morning, what I want to do this morning and this evening is answer this one question. Are we in the last days? There's a phrase that shows up in the Bible frequently. Phrases. Some of the phrase like last days or that idea last time shows up some 50 times in the scriptures. And then there's other phrases like the time of the end, those days, the day of the Lord, or even the end of the age. And as you dissect and look at those different passages and those different phrases where they're used, the question comes, are we in that time yet? And we're going to answer it this way, yes and no. Most of where those phrases show up are giving future events. Future events we'll discuss in our study, but most of them are talking about in the last days there's a resurrection. The last days there's a tribulation period. For those of you unfamiliar, it's the last seven years before Jesus comes back, the worst time in all of human history. It talks about then after that tribulation, in the last days there's going to become a millennium where Jesus will rule and reign a thousand years here on this earth. And so when we take those phrases, the end times, the last days, most of them are referring to the last days of Israel or the church and or the church. They're not simultaneous or or synonymous. The last times of those two entities in what we know of planet Earth at this time and experiences. And so as we discuss that, as we go through, our question comes back is, okay, are we there? And again, they usually refer to Armageddon or tribulation or judgment or what is the world like right before those things kick off, like the return of Christ, etc. And we know, as we're asking a question, we know that Jesus said to his disciples who were wondering, are we in the last days? They thought it was already then. There, when, when James Ray says, behold, the Lord is at the door. We understand that a lot of those in the early New Testament era, they thought Jesus was coming again at any moment. But Jesus told them, and when, he, when he's wrapping up his ministry, he says, nobody really knows the exact moment or the exact hour when I'm coming back. In fact, when he ascended to heaven, he warned them of making predictions and giving specific dates or a specific year or a specific uh, month that would happen. He says, nobody, nobody knows that. Only the Father knows. And yet, for all the, the warning that Jesus gave, even in modern times, people are still giving the idea that, oh, yeah, here's a date, here's a year. I mean, just recently, the one of the most recent, Harold Camping, whose family radio did it again, <clears throat> gave another date. And he said, yes, he misinterpreted, so he gave three other dates to follow up. <clears throat> and he still hasn't gotten the clue that we don't know. We don't know. Uh, in, in fact, we can go back into history and we realize that people did it all the time. But our question is still coming back to this. You know, is he coming? Now, let, let's just take it for, uh, take a fact. This, path, this is written by a man who said the last days are upon us. Weigh carefully the times. Look for him who is above all time, eternal, invisible. When Ignatius wrote that, that was 110 A.D. He thought it was going to happen in his time. Uh, Hippolytus, another church leader, he wrote that Christ has got to come back by the year 500. Um, Martin Luther, who was one of those figures of the Reformation, he wrote that we can't last even more than 100 years. Christopher Columbus wrote a book on prophecies And he even gave the year. He said that the world's got to end in 155 years. And he said it was 1656. You and I know it didn't happen. Yes? Would you agree with that? Okay. So we know that that people make these predictions. And the Word of God said you shouldn't be doing that. But this much we do know. We are closer to the latter days than anybody ever before. That is almost a duh statement, okay? But when we look at scriptures, just how close are we? Okay, people thought they were living in those days back when Paul wrote, or when Martin Luther wrote, or Columbus wrote. They thought it was then. Can we say with any kind of greater certainty that we are in those last days of the church, the last days before Christ comes back? And I'm going to suggest to you, by proof in scripture, we can say it better now than anybody ever could before. When they made those statements, there were still some predictions that had to come to pass. We have seen in recent time, in this generation, in this period of time, 
like never before, some of those indicators being fulfilled like never before in history. I want to show you some of those indicators, okay, this morning and this evening. I want to start with that idea that this isn't giving you a specific day or time. It's like driving down the turnpike and you see a sign, Lebanon, and it's coming up. You know, it's soon. So our road signs this morning are last days ahead. Exactly the exact moment, I don't know. The exact year, I don't know. The exact date, I don't know, and neither do you or anybody else. Jesus said nobody knows. But are we in that time period? Yeah. Yeah. Join me. First, in the, first of all, in this passage. We're in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, I'm going to read, and I'm also going to put up uh, another translation, another version, so that if you don't have a Bible in your lap, you can follow, or you can see some of the wording is a little bit different. That might give some definition to some of the description. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of, their, that, of, of, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. The phrase that in the last days... Okay, and so we look at this and we say, okay, he's talking about children being disobedient. We understand. And you and I, we, we know there's always been a tendency for children to disobey because of the sin nature. There's always been some things happening. Like this writer, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners. They have a contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders. They love to chatter in place of exercise. Children are tyrants, not the servants in the household. They, have, they no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict. They chatter before company. They gobble up the dainties. They cross their legs. In that culture, that must have been bad. Okay, so they cross their legs and they tyrannize their teachers. Do you know when this was written? Anybody recognize this? It was written by Socrates around 400 B.C., okay? And to say, okay, kids are going to be disruptive. Well, that's the way it's been, okay? So why am I suggesting that it's getting a little bit worse like never before? Have you gone to schools lately? Have you seen what kids are facing that some of us never faced? I mean, now, American youth, when we talk about what culture they're growing up in, compared to what some of us adults grew up in. The kids these days, they have school shootings. We didn't have that. that. That's a social issue. They have security guards in school. We didn't have anything like that. We're living in a society where drug proliferation, it, the reality is that they're calling it an epidemic, that there's an opioid crisis. That, that's not been history. But that's in this modern era that all of a sudden we have issues of morality that this passage says in the latter days there's going to be moral issues like never before. Let's pick these, okay? Sexual activity. We know there's always been that tendency. There's always been some illicit or some adulterous things happening from history. But now, but now there's this epidemic proportions. Now we have in modern technology making extramarital affairs, very, very normal. Do you, do 10% of those who are using dating websites are already married. In fact, they go on and they talk about, and you can find this on the website, top, top, top uh, dating, uh, dating websites for those who want an extramarital affair. When did this become so okay that it becomes a website page? When, when is it all of a sudden premarital sex? It's always been a challenge but when has society come to this conclusion that 40%, 46% of Americans say that which the Bible says is wrong is okay? I mean, do you do remember that the Bible says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil? And now we see a tendency that all of a sudden, here's these trends. Talk about a trend. Pornography, is it an issue? Is it a battle? In 2010, worldwide, less than 1 million sites of views were being done. And eight years later, 100 million per day. In, in the Gallup poll, 46% say that watching porn is morally acceptable. And when we talk about being scared, 1 in 10 teens think it's bad. That means the other 9 think it's okay. Is it a scary environment? 
Are we getting more decadent? What about abortions? Worldwide, there is one every 96 seconds. Several children have died since we started this service, a number of them. In the United States, since it was legalized, and I'm talking only the legalized, 62.4 million abortions estimated. Do you know what that compares to? That is taking Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and West Virginia and wiping them out. Are we living in a decadent age like never before? Let me give this. Is abortion right or wrong? Okay, let's do the poll. Should abortion be legal in all or most cases? 61% of our fellow Americans say yes. Of that, there is a group who are called evangelical Christians. That means they claim to be born again. They claim to be, they, they claim to be following the Bible. They claim to be individuals like you. You would be classified as an evangelical Protestant. Should abortion be legalized? 23% of our fellow brothers and sisters say yes. That ought, that ought to scare us that what we're living in. We go a step further where we say, do you believe homosexuality is sin? In America, the Americans that responded, 44% said yes. Of the evangelical Protestants, the Christian community, the born-again community, is it wrong, is it sin? 14% said no. And then they followed up with this. Would you have anything to do or visit a church that calls homosexuality sin? The number of Americans who said they would have nothing to do with the church that calls it, and this is, goes back, you're calling good evil and evil good. Over a third of Americans are against churches that call homosexuality sin. Are we living in an age when evil is called good and good is called evil? Okay. Is there a trend towards that? Now, I understand, and I, and I understand that the society has a downward path. I understand that, and I know that there's been tendencies towards this all along. But that's just one of those road markers that said, hey, when you see these road markers, and I have a total of 11 or 12 that I'm sharing with you today. This is just one. Let me give you another one, that when they start lining up, it is scary. Let's do this. Let's go to First Timothy. Let's go back a book. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, just back to your left. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy 3. We're going to come back. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he uses the phrase, the last times. And you can follow along here or in your Bible. Now the Spirit expressly says this. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. In other words, he's talking about Satan getting involved in Christendom, in Christianity, and giving false doctrines. And he gives some of the examples of those false doctrines. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, etc., etc. Okay, so this fits right with another passage. In 2 Thessalonians, he's describing Antichrist and when he's going to be revealed. And he gives road markers when Antichrist be, is going to be revealed. And he says, right before Antichrist is revealed, that day, which is Antichrist revealing by signing a covenant, shall not come except there come an apostasy. An apostasy, and then the man of sin shall be revealed. So both these texts are talking about the latter days. One of the great signs is a huge defection from the truth that Jesus taught. Now, I understand that in history, there's always been false teachers since Jesus Christ. You know that. Jesus warned of false teachers. We understand that in the very early years of Christianity, there was a movement within churches and preachers that shifted away from the Bible being the authority, that shifted away from salvation by grace, and then they started teaching you can get saved by being baptized, and then they started saying a doctrine of sacerdotalism. Preachers are better than people and they're, they're more holy than the normal people in the pew. Then they started taking away the idea of, a, of uh, independent churches and they centralized 
So that by the year 323, there was a, a centralized organization and church that ruled and took away even telling people they can't read their Bibles. And they shouldn't follow their Bibles. And they chained the Bibles up and et cetera, et cetera. We know that there's been, within Christendom, there's been all of this happening. But we also know, we also know historically, that from that time when some people were believing the truth, even in the early years, that Jesus predicted that he would build his true church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Which means that even while there was this growth of churches organizing and drifting away from the authority of the word of God and letting some people and councils take authority and works being what saves rather than Jesus Christ and then starting to put in other things and other other intermediators and things like that, there was always a true element. There was always a Bible-believing group who they were through history persecuted, but they were faithful to the Word of God. They preached, you must be born again. The Bible is the sole authority. Jesus is the way to heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And those people, we know who they were. We can read in history and we find about some of those who are the Donatists and, and the, the, the Huguenots and a variety of different groups that you read through history. That there was always this element of preaching, you must be born again. And they were there throughout history, otherwise Jesus was mistaken. So there was always a true church paralleled by some people who were defecting and giving false religion. Well, we look at that and we say, okay, Jesus is saying that those who were holding on to the truth through history... Those were the Donatists, the Huguenots, the Anabaptist movements who were Bible and Bible. He's saying that there's going to be a defection amongst them at some time in the future. These other groups have already defected early, early on. But there's going to be a great defection amongst those who would call themselves in modern days evangelicals, born-again people. And so we start looking and saying, are we in that time? That even those who claim to be Bible believers and followers and promote the Bible, is, is there a shift now? And so we go back and say, okay, what's happening in America? Let, let's deal with, he says, a shifting away from the faith. Let's just look at the very simplest truths about the faith. We know that different churches operate in different. They can choose to do what they want in their services. But the faith is, we believe the Bible. We believe God. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that salvation is by grace through Jesus Christ. We believe that, that the Bible is the authority. Those are the basic, very simple ideas. What's happening in America? This is 220. It's pretty recent. Those who agree God is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, just creator of the universe who still rules the world today. Well, we go back a few years and 73% of our nation's people said, I agree with that. Just recently, only 51% believe that anymore. Then the question was asked, okay, by this survey, is Jesus God? 52% said Jesus is not God, but he was a good teacher. That's a huge defection from the Bible, is it not? Okay, where he writes in 1 John that if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and come in the flesh... Okay, you have defected and you go out from amongst us because you were not of us. And he's warning. So 52% of Americans say Jesus is not God. That's not the one that's, that shocked me. They asked those who are claimed to be evangelical, born-again Bible believers, they claimed. And of those who claim to be born-again Bible believers, 30% said that they don't believe Jesus is God. How can you not believe Jesus is God and be born again? How can you claim to believe the Bible and not believe Jesus is God? So we go a little bit further. 44% believe that Jesus sins like anybody else. We go a little bit further in these surveys. You can get to heaven by faith in Christ alone. Would you agree with that or disagree? Listen, if you're born again, that's what you believe. Okay? That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by Jesus Christ. Okay. That if you shall call upon the name of the Lord, not your preacher, your church, your baptism. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Okay. 
So do you believe that you get to heaven by faith and faith in Christ alone? Well, they asked the survey and 30% of the people responded. That doesn't shock me that 30% of Americans, because a lot of people are saying, it's me, it's Jesus plus me. Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus plus my going to church. Jesus plus my giving money. Jesus plus my good looks. That leaves a lot of us out. Okay, Jesus plus whatever. Okay, and then they ask this question, okay, you can get to heaven, they said, how many agree with this? You can get to heaven by a combination of Jesus plus those other things. And when they ask that question, again, the majority of Americans would say that's where they're at because they're not evangelical, born again. But 52% of those who claim to be born again no longer think it's by faith and faith alone? Half of those in America who say that we hold to the Bible and the Bible only as our faith and practice, we believe you can get to, work, get to heaven by faith and good works? My friends, this is, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. What will it be like in the next generation when people aren't putting their faith in Christ alone? To me, this just, this just smacks of, there's a great defection happening, even amongst Bible-believing churches. And it all starts, we know this, it all starts with seminaries, that they're training preachers to doubt the Bible, to doubt the miraculous, and they start teaching that, and they start corrupting it, and we can see it. We can see that people don't pick churches based on doctrinal truth. People pick churches based on what makes me feel good. If it's a short sermon, that's, that always surprises me that you even come, okay, because of that one. People, people aren't picking churches based on what are they teaching, but is the music something that I really like? Is the, is the pastor really, really, you know, does he tell a lot of stories? It doesn't make any difference. What do they believe? What is their doctrinal position? Do they agree with the Bible? There's a great defection. And again, again, I know there's been a defection. You've been seeing a historical pattern. But again, let's lay these things side by side. That all of a sudden in history, there's corruption like never before socially. There's a great defection like never before we've seen. But let's get a little bit more pointed. Let's go to Second Peter. Let's go to Second Peter. And let's lay another road sign right there. In Second Peter chapter 3. He is writing, and he says in verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. So now we got mockers. And why are they mocking? Here in verse 4, they are saying, Where is this promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the very beginning of, of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Do you know what that's referring to? That's referring to creation. Done by the word of God when he separated the waters and the, and the, the lands. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, it perished. What's that referring to? The flood. And he says in this text that we just read, he says, in the last days... People will say, oh, there's been nothing catastrophic, nothing abnormal. Everything has just been going the same, the same, the same, the same, the same. Generation, generation, hundreds, 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 even thousands, 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 tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions and millions and millions of years. And they will deny that the world came by the word of God, that God created, that there is a designer creator. They will deny that willingly ignorant of it, and they will even ignore the fact that there's a lot of things in this world that change and show catastrophic, not because of age, but because of a great flood. And he says that this is going to be a sign, one of the signs, one of the road marks of the last days. You do realize this, don't you? There is a whole teaching in science, is uniformitarianism. It's the basic idea that Earth's geological processes indicate that whatever's happening today has always happened, and everything's continuing even since the very beginning in a very, very slow-paced system. And therefore, everything is really, really old. God didn't get involved with it. There was no flood, and everything's just kind of evolving. 
We call this teaching that is now promoted as truth in America and around the world, we call it what? Evolution. He has stated in this passage that when there's this teaching that is accepted and popularized, mark it down, you're in the last days. You're in the, the final phases of the church age and what's going to be happening. And you and I, we know this. You don't go to a museum and say, and read anywhere in a museum that it says, the theory of evolution says. You don't read that. You only read evolution teaches us. And even though it has been multiple times, there have been flaws and hold, holes showing in evolution, even though it's there, people are willingly ignorant. People don't even stop to think when God created the world, he created the world with age. We know that's true. You do know that's true, yes? Okay, he created, when he created, trees were old. Animals were old enough to do what? Reproduce. Mankind was created old enough to reproduce. So the age isn't the issue. It's where did it come from? And they are willingly ignorant to acknowledge God is the creator. Because if you say God is my creator, I have to give an account to him. And one of the signs of the times. Now, isn't it interesting? So we start looking at these signs of the times and laying them side by side. And even though people have for years thought, oh, we're in, you know, kids are bad. We're in, you know, morality issues. And even though we've got some defection from the truth... Hey, wait a minute. Let's lay these signs down and let's remind ourselves, by the way, before I go any further, when did evolution become widespread accepted? A thousand years ago? Only in the last century. The last 150 years. It's modern. It is in this time period. And then we have this. We have Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, is he's writing prophecy, and God says to Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book. You're not ready to study the end times yet. There's still more to come. But he says, in the end times, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. What's he meaning? He's saying that in the end, in those latter days, there's going to be, and I'm going to use the term just for, for explanation, there's going to be an explosion of travel and an explosion of knowledge. You know, you and I look and say, hey, yeah, in Bible days they were walking. And then they advanced, really advanced to wagons. Then they, all of a sudden, in the 1900s, we got cars. And now we've got cars. Communication, handwrite, send it via somebody who could carry it for the weeks and the months in letters. And then we thought we were really advanced when Pony Express came along. That was phenomenal in America. And then, all of a sudden, wow, they've got, um, yeah, the Morse code thing. Uh, telegraph, telegraph, yeah. Okay, telegraphs. And then, then phones. You could talk, and it was amazing. And then Star Trek came in the 60s. And we watched Star Trek, and they had these communicators they pulled out of their pocket. And it wasn't even with a wire. And we thought, futurism. They can talk on this device. You know, beam me up, Scotty. They, you know, they could do this. And now you're sitting in your pot with your phone in your pocket and saying, beam me out of here, someone. <laughs> We're living in a community. People used to think and draw pictures of men flying. When did flight become a reality? Early 1900s. And then from the early 1900s, We've got people on the moon within a couple generations after that. We're doing space. There's a book that I, that I picked up, and he just comments on this, this idea of explosion of knowledge. Maybe, maybe it's boring to you, but otherwise just listen and, and uh, pacify me for a moment. I can point to countless areas where our life today is dramatically different from life of past generations. But the one area that most dramatic difference is technology. Think about it. For thousands of years, man could travel no faster than a horse could carry him. This remained true from the Garden of Eden until the 19th century. That's a long time. Yet in the short span of a century and a half, we have upgraded to automobiles that go from zero to 60 in a matter of seconds. We've gone from men publicly proclaiming man flight is impossible to jet airplanes traveling several times the speed of sound. 
Think about the technology that's probably within 10 feet of you right now. For example, you're most likely reading this book on a phone, tablet, or e-reader. Each of these devices has the capability to store thousands of books, the equivalent of a small library 100 years ago. And such devices are affordable to almost everyone. Compare that to a 2,000-book library a century ago. Only the rich could afford them. And this revolution isn't confined to books. It's the same with music. Mozart lived 250 years ago. Kings, queens, wealthy elite commissioned him to create original scores and entertain them with his musical abilities. Then they paid entire orchestras to gather together and perform them. Today, you carry around more music on your iPod than you likely have ever, than they ever heard in an entire lifetime. And you can play it on demand whenever, wherever you want. Look at warfare. For centuries, battles consisted of hand-to-hand combat. Warriors used shields, swords, spears, daggers. Sometimes they used horses, catapults, and gunpowder. As warfare evolved over the course of centuries, very little changed in terms of how much damage a single weapon could inflict. Then, the 20th century. World War I introduced new rapid-fire weapons, TNT, chemical weapons. This led to mass slaughter of armies. World War II brought gas chambers, systematic genocide on a mass scale. It also gave us the atomic bomb, a single weapon capable of, in- of destroying entire cities' populations. We go a little bit further. As mentioned earlier, we went from the Wright brothers to the 18-12-second flight in a glider to men on the moon in less than two generations. If that's not exponential increase in travel, I don't know what is. And what about knowledge? Do you see exponential increases in knowledge? When it comes to the accumulation of knowledge and information, we see great strides made on a daily basis. Need an example? In 1990, there was only one website. Think about it. Think about how much the world has changed in such a short period of time. Only one website in 90. Six years later, the internet had more than 100,000. A decade later, 100 million. As of writing this book, the estimates are 1 billion plus. And that number will be out of date by the time you read this book. The rapid advance in technology shows no sign of ending. Every day, more people gain access to the Internet. New information is distributed. New breakthroughs take place in almost every uh, area of life. Computers continue to increase in power and decline in cost. Advances in artificial intelligence become more impressive. For example, 2011, an IBM computer named Watson defeated former Jeopardy! champions Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings. Within six months, Watson was obsolete. He finishes up. For example, international travel is more commonplace today than it was 100 years ago. And in the years to come, it will be even more commonplace. As the cost of new technology decreases, developing nations will quickly adopt them. When they do, more and more people will plug into a global economy. More and more people will log into the Internet. Eventually, everyone in the world will be connected with everyone in the world. Are we seeing an explosion in knowledge and travel? Absolutely, like never other generation. Now, take these different comments, you know, defection and social corruption and explosion of knowledge. Take those and then say, okay, let's kind of wrap them together. And for the first time, for the first time, we're getting them all coming into one convergent line. You know, they could have said, yeah, oh, years ago, and they did. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. But still, some events had to take place, like this next one. He couldn't come back until this happens. The next one that we see is Daniel chapter 9. Israel has to be back in the land. Go to Daniel 9. Follow along as I take you through this text in a quick fashion. In Daniel chapter 9, God, go there, folks. Daniel 9, this is the key text to all prophecy. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. As it is opening up, Daniel is out of the land of Israel. Israel is a non-entity. It's been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. They have been out of the land for 69 years. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, on the 70th year, they're going back into the land. And so he's saying, oh God, you predicted in 70 years we'll be back in the land. That's next year. Does that mean you're going to start your kingdom next year when we go back in the land? And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, look at the first verse. He is saying, I'm going to tell you about your land, your nation, Israel, Jerusalem, and when the kingdom will come. And he's talking about a kingdom. And when he starts talking about that kingdom, he describes it this way. He says, 70 weeks, 77s, literally in the Hebrew. 77s, or 490 years. 
77s are determined upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem to finish all transgressions, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation of iniquity, to bring an end to ever bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of the prophecy, to anoint the most holy. There's 490 years in my prophetic timetable, God says. And in the, at the end of that 490 years, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will come to this earth. And so he's going to give him some indications of how this unfolds. And basically he's going to give him a countdown of the 490 years. And he says at the verse 25, when he says, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the Messiah. So he says, whenever this, this allowance by the Persian king, when he starts allowing you to enter into the land, it's going to be a period of time. You're going to be allowed to go back, and the Jews were. We know historically that the decree came in 535. They could go back, and they could start rebuilding. Okay, the first decree. There was a couple of them. And he says, okay, they could start going back. He says, that's going to be followed by seven sevens, or 49 years. And on top of that, another 62 sevens, or another 434 years. And there's nothing in, in between. They're just back to back. And so basically, from the time of the commandment, there's going to be 483 years, and then Messiah. Messiah will come. Okay? And so he says, Messiah is going to show up, and basically just says, until Messiah, so Messiah shows up, and sometime after Messiah shows up, Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed. The word is slaughtered like an animal sacrifice, but not for himself. He'll be killed for others. And we know that's true. We know that Jesus died around 28 AD. Over, there was that, that period of time predicted, those 483 years. After that, Jesus came, Jesus died, and something else will happen. Okay? And Jesus died not for himself. He predicts, then after that, without giving a time frame, he says, after that, there's going to become a people a group of people of a prince other than Messiah, we understand it's Antichrist, they're going to come and those people will destroy the city and the sanctuary, Jerusalem and the temple. Fulfillment, it happened 70 AD. Jesus even said to the disciples, you're going to see this abomination, everything be fulfilled and all that problems. And he said that you will see one day in your lifetime, you're going to see the city of Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, and you'll weep and cry over it. And so we have... The beginning, 483 years, there's this gap of time, Jesus shows up, Jesus dies, there's another gap that all of a sudden the temple is destroyed, and then he's, he's in this gap, he's in this period of time. Sometimes after that 483 years, he says, in that, after that, the temple is destroyed, there's going to be, unto the end, desolations. Desolations upon your people. In other words, the Jews will be persecuted, they will be they will be assaulted. They will, they will be devastated. Well, we know that's true. We know that ever since they were put out of their land, they went under Spanish persecution, Russian persecution, German persecution. They were persecuted even by Great Britain and the United States at times. We know that. That was fulfilled. And then he, uh, he, there's this gap, and he says then, okay, at the end, okay, the beginning of that final seven years, it's going to start this. Eventually the prince, that other ruler, shall confirm a covenant with many, many of the Jews, for the final seven years. We understand that. That's the tribulation. Jesus talked about that. That's what Paul writes about in Second Thessalonians, about the Antichrist coming, and the Antichrist is going to be signing this covenant with, the, with Israel. And that begins the final seven years of these 490 years that are designed to work with Israel and to dealing with the Jewish nation. And we're, we know we're living in a gap of time, a gap of time that he is working with the church, not Israel. But one day he's going to come and he's going to start working with Israel. And so for that to happen, for this treaty to be signed to start those final seven years, Israel has to be a nation. You don't sign treaties if you're not nation. Israel was out of the land from 70 A.D., until, okay, okay, 47, 48, I, I put 47 by mistake, okay, compared to some of you, okay, they were a non-entity, they only got back into the land, in other words, until they get back into the land, 
we weren't in the last, you know, the last days weren't going to happen. Okay, there was, there was predictions, but we've got to see this thing fulfilled. They had to get back in the land. They had to become an entity that would all of a sudden regather the Jews in one spot. And you think about this. For 1900 years, there was no Israel. For 1900 years, they were scattered. They were not a nation. In our recent history, it finally happened. And think about it. Think about it a little bit further. What other nation in history, what other group of people were taken out of their homeland for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, kept their identity, and end up back in that same homeland where they were originally, same name, same type of system? None. Israel is unique in all of history because Israel is the chosen people of God. And so what happens in all this prophecy? That God says, there they are. This miracle of 1948 had to happen. That they get back in the land. Oh, by the way, can I add to this? I'll show you tonight. Not only do they have to be back in the land, but they have to be controlling Jerusalem. According to prophecy, for what happens, I'll share it more and just let me say it. According to prophecy, they've got to be back and in control of Jerusalem for things to happen with Antichrist in the first three and a half years. When did they get control of Jerusalem? Not 1948. 1967 was the first time in all of that history that the Jews occupied Jerusalem. Now you put this all together and say, wait a minute, we've got this indication of an explosion of knowledge that is very unique to our recent generation. We've got Israel back in the land, very unique to our generation. We have this idea that, that all of a sudden there's going to be this teaching of denying God as creator, evolutionism, very unique to our generations recently. We've got this defection from the truth happening it's happened, but why is it happening now? We've got this idea of uh, moral decline. It's always happened, but boy, is it happening now where evil is called good and good is called evil. You put these all together, along with the other six th thoughts of predictions I'll give you this evening. You put it all together, and what's the conclusion? We are in the last days. We are approaching. Do I know when it's going to stop? No. Do I know when Jesus is coming back? No. We don't know the exact year. We don't know the exact hour. We don't know the exact day. But we do know it's got to be soon. It's got to be really soon. Like never before in history has this convergence of these predictions taken place that make common sense. Never before. And so Paul is writing as he's wrapping, bringing this in saying to Timothy, Timothy... There's going to be this corruption. And then in the middle of chapter 3 of 2 Tim Timothy, he says there's going to be these false teachers. But then he shifts in the middle of T uh, 2 Timothy 3. Go back there with me. In the middle, he shifts and says, Timothy, what should you do? What should you do as an individual in light of seeing this happening? And Paul is writing from this perspective. Paul's life is about to end. He says later on in the chapter that he's ready to be poured out. He's ready to give his life as a sacrifice. This is his swan song. This is his final email that he's sending to, to people. And he's saying basically you know, his last will and testament. I'm going to die any moment now and I'm going to meet Jesus Christ. Timothy, I don't know how long you have. But you need to be ready to meet your maker. You need to get ready. And like I had to get ready, you have to get ready. My meeting him is going to be through death. Yours, I don't know how it's going to be. Well, we know now that it was through death for Timothy. But what about meeting the Lord? How do you prepare? You know, you know how you get ready. You were going to come here this morning, so I assume you got ready. You did something instead of just roll out of the bed and show up. You, you're going to go to work. You're going to get ready. You're going to go to school. And some of you will get ready for the school. You, you were coming this morning, so we got ready for you. We showed up early, got things set, got things moved about in between services, did a little bit more to get ready for you so that you were, what was planned, what you were anticipating, we could meet like this. So he's saying to Timothy, you're going to be meeting the Lord. And to us, the readers, you're going to be meeting the Lord when you see these things happening. The Lord's meeting is coming soon. How do you get ready and stay ready? That's what the rest of this chapter is all about. Look what he says to him in this text. He's going to say, after talking about some of those, those comments and advice, he's going to say to him in verse 10, after he said about these teachers and false, verse 8, verse 9, he says, but you. 
He starts with verse 10 this way. But you, Timothy, here's what you need to do. With a, with, when you see all these false teachers and this, this, uh, de, this whole de, uh, declination within society and all that evil, but you. But you need to do something. You have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. I've gone through persecutions, afflictions, which came to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly uh, in Christ Jesus. They're going to suffer these things. But you, Timothy, in light of this, here's what you need to do. You need to pick a godly example of some saint, some mentor. You need to identify and remind yourselves they stayed faithful. They handled it. They went through persecutions and, and problems, and you can too. That's what he's telling them in this passage. He's talking like this gal, this Sarah Butcher, who is in Minnesota, Canada. She ran one of those, um, those dog sled races. She won it two years in a row. And it was a 12, 14-day race out in the cold, and you're in Minnesota at this time of the year where it's single digits and up into the southern Canada, and you're running this race. And they asked her, how is it that you continued going? How is that you kept on running the race when others and some of these you know, wilderness burly guys, they were dropping off? And she made this comment, I just kept on reminding themselves, others have done it before me. If they could do it, so could I. How are we going to continue to serve the Lord in light of a culture that is becoming more decadent? Others have served the Lord in the face of death. Others have served the Lord in the face of persecution. Others have served the Lord in violent times. We can too. I remember thinking this, and not, not that same thing, but I remember when I was in college, I thought from the day I entered college until the day I graduate was going to be an entire lifetime. It was four years. But to me, at that moment in my life, four years seemed like forever. So the first year wasn't bad because I was getting into no college life. The second and third year were the most horrible. They were most difficult. Every day went at snail's pace. I can't wait until I can get out of college. I can't wait until I get my degree. How is it that I'm going to keep on keeping on through my sophomore year and my junior year? You know, senior year wasn't bad because now I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. But I remember walking across campus multiple times saying to myself, my pastor did it. He was able to go through this. My so-and-so, this friend of mine, they were able to handle college life. They survived. I will too. So I finally survived. I graduated. And what did I do the next fall? I went back to school again. Okay. For seminary. And what did I do during seminary? My pastor did it. My brother did it. The professors, they were able to survive. How are you going to continue living under COVID pressure, under changes in our society? We look back at other godly people. They were able to be godly. So can you. So Timothy, don't quit. Don't give in to the culture. Don't, and then he gives them something else. says, not only that, stay in the scriptures. Look at verse 13, where he makes comment. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's your defection. But you, verse 14, but you, you in the, continue in the things that you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of them, uh, that you learned them, and that from a child you have known them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did Timothy learn from a child Bible truth? Who taught him? Can't say parents. His mother and grandmother. His dad was an unbeliever. But his mother and grandmother taught him truth. And it's saying, you know, there's going to be all kinds of defection. But Timothy, you remember what you were taught at your mom and grandmom's knees. Because you remember that truth that is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, that you, the man of God, may be equipped, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. Don't, don't go away from the Bible. Stick with the Bible. Even though there's a defection amongst even those who claim to be born again, don't you defect. Stay in the word. Read the word. Study the word. Make sure the Bible is your guide. Get some help. Get some people teaching you. That's no problem. He had his mother and grandmother. But friend, don't defect from the truth. Stay in the word of God. Give you a third thought okay, that he has here. 
Number three, he makes this comment of sharing the word. I charge you therefore before, I charge you, okay, okay, here we go. I charge you before the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Here's what you need to do. You need to preach the word, be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. Don't stop giving out the word of God. That same word of God that made a difference in your life will help other people to get born again. Don't hide it. Don't keep it. Share it. Give out the word of God. Get involved with the missions. Get involved with taking tracts. Get involved with Bible studies. Get others involved. Why? Keep on sharing the word. You're going to meet Christ. You're going to meet him one day. Remain faithful. You're going to meet him one day. You'll fill yourself with the word. Give out the word. And then he tells him one other thing that he needs to do here. He goes on, he says, hey, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They're going to be a time where they'll heap to themselves teachers that tickle their ears. They shall turn away from the truth and shall turn to fables. But you, verse 5, but you, he says, in all things, watch, be faithful, be diligent, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. But you maintain a godly life. You continue to do what God has called you to do. If you are born again, God has called you to live for him. If you are born again, God has called you to use you, to serve him, to be a light in a darkened world. Keep at it. Keep at it. Nobody, nobody can, un, can undo a godly example before them. It is one of the most powerful witnesses is your life along with the word of God. Just maintain that godliness. Don't let COVID discourage you. Don't let it just cause you to say, I quit. I give up. I see where the government's going. I see where society is going. Folk, we're on the winning side with Jesus Christ. He's coming soon. You want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Be faithful to Jesus. He's coming back. And all of this will be done. I wouldn't mind if it came, he came back this evening. I don't know. Okay. If he chooses not to, we're going to pick up this study then. If he chooses to come back, we're going to pick up this study in heaven. Okay. We'll be with Jesus Christ. But here's the big question. Okay. The big question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Do you know for sure that if Jesus did come back, Today, and he's coming back soon to take his bride away, would you be left behind? Or would you go to heaven? He says he's coming. All the convergences say it's really soon, like never before. It's really soon. Are you going? By the way, if you're left behind, you can turn out the lights. The rest of us are leaving. We're going to be with Christ. We want you to go with us.